0: Turn with me, if you will, to the Old Testament reading this morning from the book of Joshua. There I'll be reading three verses, four verses, beginning with verse 10. Joshua chapter 7, verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban, which have both, they have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them under among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. The reading in the New Testament comes from the book of Mark. I'd like for you to turn to Mark chapter 1. Leave your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1. Even after I read, because we'll be coming back to those passages. In Mark chapter 1, reading beginning with verse 14. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he was going along by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and went away to follow him. Father in heaven, I do pray that you'll guide us into your words in Mark chapter 1, that you'll guide us into your work in our hearts in our lives, that we might find ourselves obedient to your word, for I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You know that your spiritual life is in stagnation when your six-year-old child gets up early on Sunday morning and dresses you and gets you ready for church. You know that your spiritual life isn't what it should be when... You have every intention of obeying last Sunday morning's sermon. It's just that you can't remember last Sunday. You know that you're in spiritual stagnation when you've been a member of the church 16 years and you still can't remember the preacher's name. (laughs) Your spiritual life is on zero when... When the conversation about your commitment always begins one of these days, you'll know that your spiritual life is not going anywhere at all. If you thought the power of the Holy Ghost was the name of the latest Steven Spielberg movie. You know that your spiritual life is on dead center when the most modern hymn you know was written by some young whippersnapper by the name of Charles Wesley, whoever he was. Your spiritual life isn't what it should be if the most devotional act that you have done in the last month was to open that computerized mass appeal letter from a Christian obedience school for dogs. Your spiritual life isn't what it should be if the deepest you've dug into scripture lately was reading the LA Times book review of the Reader's Digest condensed version of the Bible. Spiritual life isn't what it should be if the last person you shared your faith with was your third grade Sunday school teacher. And your spiritual life is probably on zero if your nightly prayers still begin. Now I lay me down to sleep. Spiritual stagnation, spiritual doldrums. We all have them. We hate to admit them. Jerry's spiritual life was on zero. From 1976 to 1981, he taught a young adult Sunday school class. He also served on the church board. He went yearly to the deeper spiritual life conferences. He had a read through the Bible in a year schedule that he faithfully kept during all of this time. He drove the bus for the youth group, but things are different now. He sees himself, oh, always an active member. He's still around. He tends to church most of the time. That means once or twice a month. But he says he's just coasting a bit, resting up. But the truth of the matter is there is no spiritual rest in isolation, and his life is on zero. Jerry uh, felt like the pastor had taken advantage of him some years back. He felt like he was being manipulated, and so he got angry, and he spoke up in the board meeting and said some things and made some accusations and resigned. And then a few months later, the pastor resigned, but before the pastor left town, Jerry wanted to go and see that he could get things straight. And as he sat down to talk about their past differences, he found out there had been a great misunderstanding all along, that the things that he had said were not true at all and the pastor's intentions were quite different, and he apologized to the pastor. That was two years ago, and he still struggles with those past actions. They still remain a roadblock to his spiritual vitality. There is a solution to be found if that is your roadblock, and it's found in Mark chapter 1 verse 5. It says, and all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, he had confessed his sin before God. He had confessed his sin before the offended one, but public sins need public confession. In Ezra chapter 10, verse 1, it says, now while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, children gathered to him from Israel and the people wept bitterly. Public confession of sins. We know from the book of Nehemiah that even sins of another generation need public confessing. It says the descendants of Israel stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers publicly. Sometimes spiritual roadblocks are there because of sin that has not been properly confessed. There is to be sin confessed to the fellowship. James five sixteen. therefore confess your sins to one another. And I'd like for us to review 1 John 1, 9 once more, because I think we stop short of experiencing all that that verse promises us. We know that it says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it seems to me a lot of people have had their sins forgiven and never cleansed. That is, you can clumsily spill a cup of coffee all over yourself, and you can be forgiven for your clumsiness, but you still have a stain on the clothes. And sin is that way as well. First John promises us that not only will we be forgiven, we'll be cleansed from all sorts of stain that that sin might have brought into our life. Cleansing is often, I believe, held up until the public profession and confession of that sin takes place. Public sins need public confession. And Jerry will tell you that the toughest thing he ever did was stand up one Wednesday night at prayer meeting and tell the congregation that what he had said about the previous pastor had been misquoted and had been insensitive and, in fact, was wrong, and he wished he hadn't said it. Now, Jerry's not quite the young crusading saint that he used to be thought of, but what a difference. He's taking night school class in counseling because so many people come up and say, you know, there's some things that I've said I wish I could take back too. Failure to confess sins stifles spiritual growth. Mrs. Klein is in a rut. It's a nice Orderly, well mannered rut. Every Saturday night there's the standing in front of the wardrobe closet, the decision of what to wear to church the next day. Sunday mornings are filled with Sunday school and church and a visit to the rest home and Sunday evening worship. And Wednesday mornings mean Bible study time. She uh, cooks monthly for the um, youth club dinner. She supports the ministry of the church. She always has. She donates to the church and she supports an orphan in Taiwan. She's given to the Billy Graham Association since 1949. But every time she hears somebody talk about a deeper spiritual life, every time she hears about somebody being led of the Lord, somebody going out into new ministry, Mrs. Klein feels slighted because it just doesn't happen to her That way. She feels like her spiritual life has been stuck on routine. And there's a cure for such thing. It comes in Mark chapter 1, verse 8. And verse 12. Verse 8 says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In verse 12, speaking of Jesus, it says, And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. What Mrs. Klein needs to get her spiritual life going again is to release the Holy Spirit within her. It's possible to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and not be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit dwells in all who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit comes into our life to bring us assurance, to bring us power, to bring us spiritual gifts. But sometimes we have a misconception of what the Holy Spirit is like. If I can use the analogy, sometimes we think the Holy Spirit is like a, well, like a cup. And we we think about the little song, fill my cup. And we think of the Holy Spirit as I need to partake of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to put a little of the Holy Spirit within me. And the Holy Spirit therefore being within me is going to give me the motivation I need. But I want to remind you the Holy Spirit is not a cup that you drink within. The Holy Spirit is like a roaring river that can take you along. Now we used to ride the, the, down the rivers in tubes when we were in Idaho, and it's possible even in a strong river, if you get behind a large enough rock, to prop yourself behind the rock and not go anywhere at all. But if you pick up your legs and hold on to the tube, you're going to be moved down a a river of excitement, and the same is true with the Holy Spirit. We can impede what he wants to do in our life, or we can pick up our legs and hold on to the tube and know that we won't drown, know that we'll have others on the ride, know that life will never be dull or routine. We need to release the Spirit to get by some of those roadblocks. Mrs. Klein was watching a singing evangelist from North Carolina one Thursday morning, and when he had some teaching time, he was talking about releasing of the Holy Spirit, letting the Holy Spirit control your life, and he said that she could do that, and the audience could do that right in their homes where they were, and so she decided she wanted to do that, and she made a prayer. She said, God, I I am willing to do whatever you want me to do, and I will not turn down any ministry opportunity unless I have prayed it through for at least a week first and really prayed about it if that's what you want me to do. And she anxiously awaited the Lord's leading, and during the next six weeks, she prayed through and decided not to teach preschool, to take a trip to the Holy Land, to start a kids' club in her backyard, to attend a national evangelism conference in Washington, D.C., or to teach English to Vietnamese um, um, immigrants, and all of this she prayed through, looking for the right opportunity. And then it came. At the bottom of her monthly letter from her orphan in Taiwan was one little sentence. And due to that sentence, at age 69, Mrs. Klein leased her house to her granddaughter and packed up her bags and flew a Pan Am jet to Taipei and began her life as a volunteer cook at a Far East orphanage. Failure to release the spirit in your life is going to clog any spiritual growth. Dr. Crowley is professor of economics at the University of Idaho in Moscow. And while he was doing some undergraduate work uh, at the University of Chicago, he had an accident with his car and uh, the other people in the other car were injured more seriously than he was. But they were not bitter towards him, even though it was his fault. And he grew to to uh, know who those two people were and found out they were on the staff at InterVarsity Fellowship at Northwestern University. And so he went to some meetings there, and in those meetings accepted Christ as the Lord and Savior. And when he returned to his economics professorship, he came back as a believer. But as he would say, that doesn't mean I accept the whole fundamentalist thing. And so Dr. Crowley disclaims any any miracles in scripture, and he doubts if the Lord really bothers with individual plans for people's lives, and he has trouble with culturally related passages, he says, and he refuses to read much of the Old Testament, and he finds the scriptural account of creation primitive and incredible. So he puts a compartmentalized faith with his infant Christianity, and it's no wonder there's been no change in his his life for 23 years. You see, failure to believe the gospel has kept his spiritual life on hold. Note Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus' message, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, repent and believe the gospel. Some people's spiritual life is not going because they really don't believe the gospel. When you begin to believe the gospel, you'll find yourself searching it for answers to contemporary questions. You'll continually be surprised how many new things you discover. You'll find yourself being protective of biblical truth, even though it doesn't need your protection. You'll find yourself defending its truth. You'll say from time to time as you discover new truth, oh, I wish it didn't say that, because it's so convicting, because you know you're going to have to obey. You'll see a direct connection between exposure to the word and to changes in your life. Obey and believe the gospel. Dr. Crowley was doing a study on the economic systems of the early Babylonians. And as he did this study, he discovered some writing, some books by an organization called the Creation Research Society. And he was surprised to see a logical and scientific explanation for many of the truths of scripture. And he said to himself, oh, if I were 23 years younger, I could believe all of that. But you see, he said, I'm chairman of the department now, and really a person in my position can't go overboard. And good old Dr. Crowley remains one of the most highly educated baby Christians in the world. Failure to believe the gospel freezes spiritual growth and vitality. They didn't take a vote in the youth group, but if they would have, Kathy would have been voted the most likely to succeed in mission work of any person in the church youth group. She was born and raised in the mountains of Chile with missionary parents. She played the guitar and led singing. Every summer she spent in different kinds of mission work. She personally, at the end of four years, had led over 20 other high schoolers to the Lord at her high school. She was a straight-A student. And her straight-A's meant that she could uh, not only get a good scholarship and attend Wheaton College, but she could also uh, get a job, part-time job, with a company in computer work. And her good math background did her well, and she succeeded in that. In fact, the scholarship was so good and the part-time job so good, she had some extra money to spend on some luxuries, but she felt like after a lifetime of living out of a missionary barrel, it was time for a few luxuries. When she completed her school, she had an opportunity for promotion within that company, and she decided to take the promotion. It was a high-paying job, it meant a red new Camaro and an apartment on North Shore Drive, and she enjoyed those things. Oh, she still was a regular member of the young adults class at the Downers Grove Evangelical Free Church, but she doesn't have much time to give to it, what with the seminars on weekends and the training of new people. She looks back to those earlier years of spiritual growth, and yet she doesn't have much time to consider You see, failure to sacrifice has kept Kathy from accomplishing all that she could have done for the Lord. You see a clue and a cure in Mark chapter 1, verse 18. It says, in speaking of Simon and Andrew, and they immediately left the nets and followed him. And then in verse 20, and immediately he called to them, this is James and John, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. A solution to get your spiritual life going again is to give up something valuable to the Lord, to sacrifice. I want to encourage you that this is the quickest way to get a spiritual life going. And it's also the most difficult and the one least used. It's least used because it's going to cost you something. But it's the fastest way to do a deeper commitment. Just consider what is your most valuable talent. Consider what is your most valuable block of time. Consider what is your most valuable um, object or material possession. And give that to the Lord's work and you'll find yourself going again as far as your spiritual growth is concerned. One morning, Kathy came outside and saw that somebody during the night had run into a red Camaro. And it was totaled. And as she sat there with tears in her eye at her most treasured material possession, she began to realize God wanted her to give some things up. And she realized that it was fortunate she hadn't been in it. And she looked at a smashed door. And she thought, if my life is more valuable than that material possession, maybe there are other lives in the world more valuable than material possessions as well. Now, she still works in computers, and she still lives in the Chicago area. But now she works in the computers for a far eastern mission organization. And she rides the L to work, and she gets by on half the salary. And the last word was she was organizing 2,000 young people to go to the Philippines for summer mission work. Failure to sacrifice crushes spiritual Vitality. Tony grew up in the streets of El Paso, Texas, left to Rome by his mother and threatened with his life by his father. If you call his upbringing tough, it would be a gross, mystery, a gross understatement. By the time he was in his teens, he was getting by on cheap wine and shooting dope and selling his body to the highest bidder. And it was in a Juarez jail that he found some spiritual help. When a couple of members from the Second Baptist Church of El Paso brought him to Christ. When he was back on the streets, he was a regular attender of that Josephina Street Church. And he tried with all his might to change those past habits. And he dedicated himself to the Lord. And he told all of his friends that he was going to overcome what his upbringing had brought in his life. But try as he may, Tony kept failing and failing and failing. Somewhere in the midst of that fine evangelistic teaching of the church, they forgot to tell Tony about the power of Satan to attack a Christian life. And he was trying to fight spiritual battles with earthly tools. And he was losing. Mark chapter 1, verse 25. Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. Spiritual progress can never be made without a spiritual battle. To rebuke Satan means you tell him you know who he is, and you know who you are, and you know what limitations he has in your life. Satan might not be the direct cause of all evil. Certainly we battle the world and the flesh as well as the devil. But if you've changed your environment... And if you have given it your best shot with your own strength and you still can't overcome, chances are you're dealing with Satan and you need to rebuke him. Tony was sitting by a railroad track in Las Cruces, New Mexico when he first heard about the power of Satan. And he realized that what he needed to do, and he jumped to his feet and shouted out some words that sent chills down everyone's spine when he said, Satan, I'm a child of God. And I've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and you have no power to keep me tied to these old sinful habits. And I renounce you and cast you out of my life. Nowadays, most everyone in the Rio Grande Valley has heard Tony's renouncing of Satan. Because he has a habit of doing it from time to time, whenever he's confronted with one of those old habits. And he seems to have that ability to say it in such a loud voice that everybody on the street hears. And he smiles when he shares the fact, he said, you'd be surprised how quickly those trying to sell me wine or dope or sex turn away and flee to the other side of the street when I shout, I renounce you, Satan. Now, those are extreme measures, but Tony's case is extreme. But anyone who thinks they can find vital Christian life and never ever confront Satan is in for a big disappointment. Failure to rebuke Satan puts you in your spiritual life on a dead end street. Dave came to the Lord in 1969. He was so excited about his faith, he accepted the Lord in November. He sat down and he wrote Christmas cards early to all of his relatives. And in that, he told them about how he accepted the Lord. And then he sent Christmas cards to all of his friends that he had and said that he had a new religious and spiritual experience with Jesus Christ. And then Dave took his high school annual and took all the names of people he could remember from high school, tried to locate their address, and sent them a Christmas card telling about conversion, that had happened in his life. And let me tell you, that Christmas in 1969 for Dave was really different. A lot of people avoided him. And some pretended like nothing had happened at all, but others came and talked to him about spiritual things. And all of a sudden, Dave was the one asking all the questions in the Sunday school class, almost dominating the conversation, because there were so many answers he needed for his newfound faith. Dave was convinced that that new faith was a life of adventure, but that was 13 years ago and a lot of refinement have come since then. There was college to finish and seminary to attend. And then there was seven years as an assistant pastor in a large urban church where he's been involved with organization and planning and administration and visitation. And right now Dave is born. And he wonders if there's some other church ministry to go to. And he's thinking to himself, will it be like it is now? And is it only new Christians that get excited about their faith? Failure. Failure to bring the needy to Christ hampers spiritual vitality. Mark chapter 1, verse 30 and verse 32. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever and immediately they spoke to him about her. And in verse 32, when the evening had come after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. There are a lot of needy people in the world. A needy person for me is one who hurts and one who knows they hurt. And the world is full of those. They hurt spiritually, they hurt physically, they hurt socially, they hurt mentally, they hurt emotionally, and they need what Jesus has to offer them we need to go to people who hurt. You see, the longer we're Christians, probably the less hurt we see. One is because we isolate ourselves with other Christians. And everybody knows Christians don't hurt. That's the image that we put for one another. And so we aren't around people who are hurting. And of course, we don't have that opportunity to bring the needy and the hurting to Christ. Our responsibility is not to convert him, but to bring him into the Lord's presence and teach them how they can expect him to meet all their needs. Dave has just accepted a position with the denomination. He's going to be regional director for church mission and support, and he'll do a good job, but he'll never experience the thrill of those early years until he personally begins to lead hurting people to the person who can cure those hurts. Failure to lead the needy to Christ leaves your spiritual life flat. If there's one thing that Margie wants in life, it's to see her church grow. She and her husband were among those 12 couples that began the church work in 1939. And since times were financially hard then, the only pledge that they made was how much time a day will you spend in prayer support for this new church work? And Margie pledged back when the kids were still in diapers, 10 minutes a day, she was going to pray for the church. And right through the 40s and the 50s, she kept that pledge. And right through the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, you can still hear it said around the church that Margie prays for the church every day. She's even taught others how to be faithful in prayer for the church. The only trouble is, it's been over a month since she's really prayed 10 minutes a day for the church even though she makes that pledge yearly, it seems to be slipping. And some wonder why the church lacks vitality, yet Margie knows better. The solution comes in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And early in the morning, while it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. Jesus alone in prayer. Failure Failure to remain faithful in prayer will hamper any spiritual life. The problem is we need to narrow down those things that are worthy of our constant prayer. I mean, we need to pray for a lot of things, but not everything needs your lifetime commitment of prayer. And if your lifetime prayer list has pages upon pages upon pages, chances are you, like Margie, are going to grow tired some years, some decades. We need to pray for some things all the time, other things just as the need arises. What is there in your life worth praying for every day for the rest of your life? Your children. Every day, no matter how old, you're to be in prayer for them. What are those things? Put them on that list. Remain faithful in prayer. Margie attended a Women Who Pray conference early this spring. She was reconvicted that she wasn't as faithful as she's been claiming. She began to pray at 10 minutes a day again for her church, and after eight weeks of prayer every day, Margie can see no signs change at all. But that's okay. See, Her prayer does not depend on the changes, but on her faithfulness. She's not bargaining with God, she's committing herself. And by doing so, her spiritual life is going again. Dorothy Mason lives in a stately white house along the shore of Lake Erie. She hires someone to shovel the snow in the winter and to plant the garden in the spring and to mow the grass in the summer and to rake the leaves in the wintertime in the fall. She has a house cleaner that comes in three times a week. She likes to spend September in Hong Kong doing her yearly shopping and June is a good month for cruises. So she says... The only real problem that Dorothy Mason has comes at Christmas and holidays. And then there's just a middle-aged lady sitting in a big house looking out at the lake all alone. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. Her husband lives just down the freeway in Akron. And her daughter and family live in Cincinnati. And her son attends the University of Pittsburgh, but she hasn't seen any of them in three years. You see, five years ago, after 21 years of bickering and complaints and constant pushing to have him earn more money, Dorothy's husband came home to another nagging tirade and said, I need some rest, and walked out of the house and hasn't been back. For six months after that, she carried on that vitriolic attack of her husband with her daughter and with her son, and at that time, her daughter decided it's time to get married, and her son went away to college and kept coming back for a few holidays, but things got worse, and now he doesn't come home at all. The only friend Dorothy really has is Terry Steele, who's the host of a local call-in radio talk show. And over and over again, you can hear Dorothy say on the radio, after all, I'm not the one who made all of those mistakes. Failure to expose personal ugliness kills any chance for spiritual growth. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. And a leper came to him, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. A leper coming with the most hideous of all diseases, showing it to Jesus and saying, Jesus, look at this. Look at how hideous I look. Look at how awful this is. Look at how ashamed I am of this terrible thing. But you can make me clean. <laughs> The solution is to open up our ugliness to the Lord and beseech him to change you. Let him know you're fully aware of your own condition. Beseech him in tears if it takes tears until the answer comes. Whatever it shows takes to show that you're serious. Here's a leper begging Jesus. We think of Jesus so loving. Why would you beg? Just ask once. He would do it. So we are to come beseeching God to touch the ugliness in our own life, whether It's spiritual or mental. And commit ourselves to following his instructions that he gives. After Dorothy had spent some time in serious prayer one day, she spoke some words to her house cleaner. She said, Harold and the kids are lucky. They can leave. They don't have to live with me. It wasn't much, but it was the first time she had ever admitted that maybe she was a part of the problem. And over the next several months of prayer, she began to open up more to her house cleaner and say a few more things that were her fault and confess a few more failures. And now there's a change in Dorothy Mason. Oh, she's still going to Hong Kong in September, but her daughter's going with her. And this Thanksgiving, her son said he would come back for Thanksgiving dinner, and she hasn't seen her husband yet, but he knows that he has a standing invitation for a candlelight dinner, and Dorothy says that if he ever enters those big double doors next to the lakeside, that she and Chinese Silk have a plan to keep him there. Failure to expose personal ugliness to the Lord kills spiritual vitality. This last week I saw on the news a little bit of Big Sur country and Highway 1 and how the storms have damaged it. And I remember seeing on the news there were, of course, the big mudslides, but also whole chunks of highways gone. They were interviewing various people. And and one person was there and said, you know, it's a real tragedy. I, I don't know that it will ever be the same. And that everything is going to be different. And it was such a loss. And they were so depressed. And then they interviewed some other people. And they were actually dancing, having a party on one little stretch of the pavement that was still left. They were celebrating. They liked the isolation. They thought that was great, they said. There is some security in a dead-end street. But then they showed there were some track layers moving dirt, clearing away the roadblocks. And when they interviewed one of those men on the tractor, he said through the dust and the grime, he said, just around the corner are some of the most beautiful vistas in the whole world. And I want to make sure people get a chance to see them. Spiritual roadblocks. The storms in our life of faith bring spiritual roadblocks to all of our lives. And if we fail to remove them, we just might miss Some of the most breathless vistas we could ever imagine. Amen. Amen. Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, we can be obedient to your word. Lord, you speak to us all in different ways. We certainly don't all have the same roadblocks, Lord. But help us to get busy, get to work, to remove those things that hamper our spiritual growth to commit ourselves once more to a life of adventure and faith with you. We thank you, Lord, for your love and your encouragement and your help. Praying in Jesus' name. Amen.